Well, we're in this series um, about unfailing love, and this series, and I want to say that's very clear so that way, you know, Siri don't think I'm talking to her, but this series has been focused on the minor prophets. We've been looking at how there's this, although we see the, I guess, people would think there's doom and gloom within there, but there's always God that's trying to get his people to come back to him. And so we focused on Hosea and Joel. Today we're in the book of Amos. Amos is a powerful demonstration of God's righteous anger and his unwavering demand for social justice. Um, we're going to be doing quite a bit of reading today, which is why I didn't have a, a guest um, reader for us, I say guest reader. Uh, but it's going to be a lot of reading going on today, and I couldn't find just one specific thing for us to read through, so it's going to be quite a few. Now, let me just start by saying, which is why I have my Oxford look, my bow tie, and my hat, because uh, we're going to be doing uh, a lot of history as well within this. But some of the prophecies in this particular book are, are yet to be fulfilled, haven't been fulfilled as yet. And so when I read these passages, um, you might say, oh, that sounds like where I live, or that sounds like the U.S. You're going to find some things that will sound like that. And so there are three main things I'll focus on today. Um, the first is that we'll look at the historical backdrop during Amos' ministry, and then we'll look at an overview of Amos the prophet, Amos the person, and then we'll look at the purpose of Amos' prophetic ministry, this particular book. So we'll look at those three things within that. And so let's take a look a little bit on the historical uh, backdrop during Amos' ministry. So Amos prophesied when there was a relative prosperity and peace in the northern kingdom of Israel. Um, King uh, Jeroboam II was in power. Now we talk about that the Minor Prophets is really a thematic approach within the Old Testament. So you'll find that just like this time, um, he's actually prophesying somewhere in 2 Kings. And so this is not, you know, so don't look at the placement of where these Minor Prophets are. We talk about the fact that the Minor Prophets are the last 12 books in the Old Testament. But don't be confused. Uh, these guys are prophesying a lot of times prior uh, to the exile. And so during this time, he's prophesying um, in, in the, where you see there's a split between Israel. There's the southern and the northern. But there's prosperity going on in the northern kingdom of Israel. Um, however, this apparent uh, peacefulness and prosperity was masked by this uh, deep-rooted social injustice, moral decay, and spiritual apostasy among the people. And so the wealthy elite prospered while the poor suffered oppression and exploitation. That's what's taking place. Now, the religious landscape was marked by syncretism and idolatry. So as the people indulged in this false worship practices, uh, there was this neglect of the true worship of Yahweh, God. And so, uh, so now let's look at some of these specific things that were happening during that time. Any, any of you guys are, are, you know, have this passion for, for social justice? 
Okay, just me. Okay, all right. It's, it's, it's cool. It's cool. <laughs> uh, you're probably like, what do you mean by social justice? All right. So Israel was plagued by widespread social injustice. And so the first thing we're going to see is this exploitation of the poor. Amos 2, verses, two, uh, verses 6 to 7. It says, Thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of, is- of Israel and for four, I will not turn away its punishment, because they sell the righteous for silver and the poor for a pair of sandals. They pant after the dust of the earth, which is on the head of the poor, and pervert the way of the humble. So I stop in this first part of verse 7. So now, selling the righteous for silver and the poor for a pair of sandals emphasizes how human lives were treated as commodities to be bought and sold. You know, ironically, you know, it's Black History Month. You know, and, and so th- this is no different than what was happening back then. Um, this slave were human lives were commodities. Now, the perversion of justice and oppression of the humble, it further exasperate their dilemma. So one of those things were, if you weren't worried about poverty, then you're worried about slavery. You know, you're saying, I don't have enough food, you know, don't have the housing, don't have the clothes, and now you're worried about someone selling you um, as, as far as for silver or for sandals. So this exploitation, it extended to economic practices such as usury and land grabbing, widening the gap between the rich and the poor. You're like, what's usury? Well, usury refers to lending money to the poor at high interest rate to keep them trapped in a cycle of debt because they lack financial resources. Uh, so what do you have? Uh, the lower, in, in our context, what? The lower your credit score, the higher interest rate you pay, right? <laughs> and so, and then the same if you're buying a car, the lower your deposit, the higher your, you know, monthly payments. I mean, it's the same thing that was going on back then, so, because they lack financial resources. Now, Land grabbing refers to the unfair acquisition of land through coercion or deceptive means. So understand that back then, the land had ancestral and spiritual significance. So it was a big deal. Thinking about the fact that, you know, maybe your great, 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 great grandmother gave you this land. And so they found this way to manipulate the people. And so if you take away their land, then you're taking away their livelihood. What else do we have? Now, although land grabbing was on a larger scale by the government, what do we have as a close second in our society? Anyone? Our gentrification. Yes. <laughs> so, it, but, but, but we put a nice label on it. We call it urban renewal and redevelopment. But that was taking place back then as well. We also had the corrupt legal system, Amos 5, verses 10 to 12. They hate the one who rebukes in the gate, and they abhor the one who speaks uprightly. Therefore, because you tread down the poor and take grain taxes from him, 
though you have built houses of hewn stone, and hewn stone pretty much means it was just it was cut nicely to build these houses. So if you had money, you can get these nice houses. So hewn stone, yet you shall not dwell in them. You have planted pleasant vineyards, but you shall not drink wine from them. For I know your manifold transgressions and your mighty sins, afflicting the just and taking bribes, diverting the poor from justice at the gate. So what we're seeing is that God condemns the corruption and perversion of the legal system in Israel. The judges and officials, they accepted bribes and perverted the justice to favor the wealthy and the powerful, while the poor were denied fair treatment in the court system. So in verse 12, the reference to afflicting the just and diverting the poor from justice at the gate, it underscores the systematic corruption that plagued the judicial system, leading to further oppression and injustice. I'm sure you guys can point to several countries that that takes place, not in the U.S. Then we find the, if it wasn't all these things, there's also indifference to the needy. Amos 8, verses 4 to 6. Hear this, you who swallow up the needy, and make the poor of the land fail, saying, When will the new moon be passed, that we may sell grain, and the, th and the Sabbath, that we may trade wheat, making the ephah small and the shekel large, falsifying the scales by deceit, that we may buy the poor for silver, and the need for a pair of sandals, even sell the bad wheat. I mean, think about that. This guy said, man, I can't wait till church is over. So I can go back to being deceptive. I mean, that's what was taking place in the northern kingdom. This passage reveals the callous indifference of the affluent members of the society towards the suffering and the predicament of the poor and needy. So those with material prosperity, they showed no compassion or empathy towards those in need. Uh, you know, in our days, we could be, those are the ones who would say, I worked hard to, where, to get to where I'm at right now. Everything I do is legal. You know, focus solely on comfort and prosperity. But they exploited the poor for their own gain. This indifference further deepened social divisions and perpetuated the cycle of poverty and oppression. But if it wasn't things on the social landscape, there's also this false worship. So in addition to the social injustice, the people of Israel were guilty of false worship. And you find this again, Amos 5, verses 25 to 26. Did you offer me sacrifices and offerings in the wilderness 40 years, O house of Israel? You also carried Sekoth, your king, and Chung, your idols, the star of your gods, which you made for yourselves. So despite God's faithfulness in delivering them from Egypt and leading them through the wilderness, the people still indulged in idolatrous practices. And this idolatrous worship was a betrayal of their covenant relationship with Yahweh, and it provoked his righteous anger. Again, we talked about it last week, how 
you know, sometimes we want to blame God for everything, but God is saying, here's what I'm saying, and here's the consequence, but you're choosing to do this over here. So God, you know, saved them from Egypt, brought them through the wilderness, and here they are worshiping their own way. There is also this superficial religious observance. Amos 5, verses 21 to 24. Uh, I hate... I despise, I mean, think about that. Have you ever started saying something before, right? And you realize that the word you're about to use doesn't do it do justice. You might say, well, I, I, actually, here's what really happened. So God says, I hate, actually, I despise your feast days, and I do not savor your sacred assemblies. Though you offer me burnt offerings and your grain offerings, I will not accept them, nor will I regard your fattened peace offerings. Take away from me the noise of your songs, for I will not hear the melody of your stringed instruments. But let justice run down like water and righteousness like a mighty stream. You know, God condemns this superficial observance of the Israelites. Here they are saying, Oh, I just sing these songs. I can imagine them saying, we have a full band. Our choir, 300 voices. We have every instrument, and God says, yep, that's all noise. Because I can see your heart. You know, come to service every Sunday. You go to every event that you can find. You come inside, maybe you're kneeling down and tears running down when the worship team is singing the song. God's like, ah, that's for show. I don't want it. Despite their outward display of godliness, offering burnt offerings, participating in these festivals, their hearts were far from God. Their worship lacked sincerity and genuine devotion. So God says, don't want it. You might as well keep that. Instead, God called for justice and righteousness to flow like a mighty stream to emphasize the importance of true obedience and faithfulness over empty rituals and ceremonies. God's saying, if you don't have the right heart, I don't want that. Give me justice, and opposed to you pretending like you really love me. But it didn't stop there. There's also moral or immorality. You know, my wife was, you know, she said, uh, she said, our church is, is a, a PG church because we've been in this Old Testament and the things that pops up in the Old Testament. Um, so I said, well, if I don't say it, some of us will read it because it's in the Bible. But Amos 2, 7 to 8, it says, They pant after the dust of the earth, which is on the head of the poor, and pervert the way of the humble. A man and his father go into the same girl to defile my holy name. They lie down by every altar on clothes taken in pledge and drink the wine of the condemned in the house of their God. So in addition to their idolatry, they engaged in dishonesty, deceit, and sexual immorality by further defiling themselves and dishonoring God's name. So they're saying they're a Christian, but there's nothing about them that looks like God. Their conduct was really a mockery of true faith and righteousness. This is one of the reasons why 
I'm, I'm always talking to people when they say, why don't we have more people on, on, on preaching here? I say, yeah, we, we invite people. But this space, whether you're teaching, praying, singing a song, it's a sacred space. We need godliness up here. And, and, so, and so it's not just up here, though, but when you leave here, your life should reflect the same thing. It's, it's not just about Sundays or, or the other events. Your life has to reflect who you say you are. And so these guys, it was just a mockery because God is saying all that you're doing is a mockery of who I am because nothing about you scream, serve God. So God's condemnation of their action serves as a sobering reminder of the consequences of turning away from him and embracing sin because that's what they did. But it also underscores the importance of genuine devotion, obedience, and faithfulness in worshiping God. There has to be a sincerity of heart. I can't see your heart, but God can. So you won't find me judging you about if you're a Christian or not unless I see something that doesn't look like God. But I'm also not easily impressed because you say you're one. Because I don't know, but God can see your heart. So you can say whatever you want to say, God sees this. And that's what he was saying. He's saying, here there's consequences for your actions, and I'm looking at your heart, and I'm seeing your heart is so far from me. That was the backdrop in Amos' time. Now let's look at Amos the prophet, the person. Hi, Nora. <laughs> Everyone's looking around like, who's that? <laughs> but Amos identifies himself as a shepherd and the tender of sycamore fruit. Amos 1, verse 1. The words of Amos, who was among the sheep breeders of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. Chapter 7, verse 14. Then Amos answered and said to Amaziah, I was no prophet, nor was I a son of a prophet, but I was a sheep breeder and a tender of sycamore fruit. So the prophet Amos lived among a group of shepherds in Tekoa, which is a small town approximately 10 miles south of Jerusalem. Now, unlike the other prophets, if you look through the Old Testament, these prophets were either trained to be a prophet or came to the lineage. Maybe they're the father of the prophet. So that's just to happen, the prophetic ministry. But Amos says, listen, I wasn't a prophet I didn't go to school. I wasn't the son of a prophet. And when you look into it, you can see he's saying, listen, not only did I not come from a lineage of prophets, I didn't want to be a prophet. How do we know this? Verse 15, Amos 7, 15. It says, then the Lord took me as I followed the flock. And the Lord said to me, go, prophesy to my people Israel. So, Amos is saying, I'm good. Take care of sheep. It's nice and comfortable over here. Maybe some of you said, I used to live somewhere else. Nice water. Things are going great. And then God brought me to Berkeley. Now, Berkeley is completely different from the nice Florida Beach or San Diego and all these different things. So here's this country boy. He's country. He's living in the South. Amos is like, I was taking care of sheep. 
and God took me and say, go here. So this divine call demonstrates God's sovereignty in choosing and equipping individuals for his purposes, regardless of their background or qualifications. So one of the things I, you know, I know about God's calling is that you can't escape it. You can't. Kevin says, um, I'm good. I don't want to serve in anything. I'm just fine. And all of a sudden, he said, well, I'll just do one time, just, just one time. And after, after otherwise, like, okay, what if I just shadow? Okay, nobody's here. Okay, I'll just do that another time. And before you know it, five years go by, and you're in the same ministry that you're not called to serve in, right? Any of you like that here? Yeah, I see some hands like, I didn't plan to do this. I'll just help out with the media team just, just one Sunday because of the holiday, no one's there. And years go by, you're like, why am I still here? I don't want to do this, and I'm still here. Like, who trained me? I wasn't even trained. I'm just sitting here. <laughs> just on-the-job training. It was, just, it was talking to uh, Paul and Peter. I think it was this past, one of these days. I don't know what, which day it was. Like, it might have been Sunday. We're asking, like, how do you guys get on the worship team? They're like, I don't know. I didn't do an audition. I just found myself on here playing music and singing. Like, when did that happen? I'm sure most of you guys can say the same thing, like, I wouldn't know what I was doing, just hitting buttons, until someone tells me the wrong button I hit, <laughs> and then you fix it, right? That's what Amos said. You're going to find that his prophetic ministry took him from his hometown to the northern kingdom. Now, Amos is called to go to a region to disrupt how they were living. See, it takes courage to live an uncompromised Christian life. See, living, I laughed earlier about maybe lived in a nice, you know, beachy area, not even Berkeley. And we know the spiritual climate in Berkeley. But it takes courage to be a student at a school that has 45,000 people. And you're saying, it doesn't matter who's around me, I'm still going to serve God. It takes courage to work in an environment where people don't serve God, and you're like, I'm going to start a Bible study. And you're like, right here? Like, yeah. It takes courage to do that, because it's so easy for us to compromise our faith. You know, I'll be a Christian where it's okay to be a Christian. But when I go out there, I'll just start, I'll not say anything. I'll just say, yeah, you know, I'm a religious person. No, no, no. I'm a believer. I'm a Christian. I follow Christ. I don't serve the man upstairs. I serve Jesus. It's a big difference. It takes courage to do that. But Amos boldly proclaimed messages of judgment and warning to the people and their rulers. Now, saying Amos was bold is an understatement. Amos had no filter. I was talking to my wife again. I said, is it popular now? Now, it's not because she has no filter, <laughs> but those from the South, you know, they just say whatever comes to their minds. Is, is, it, is that true? <laughs> yeah. Now, this is what Amos did. You're going to see why I say Amos has no filter. Amos 4, verses 1 to 3. So Amos is talking. He says, hear this word, you cows of Bashan who are on the mountains of Samaria, who oppress the poor, 
who crushed the needy, who said to your husbands, bring wine, let us drink. The Lord has sworn by his holiness. Behold, the days shall come upon you when he will take you away with, with fish hooks and your posterity with fish hooks. You will go out through broken walls, each one straight ahead of her, and you will be, you'll be cast into Harmon, says the Lord. I mean, this guy doesn't even know. He's, he's talking to this woman like this. I mean, no wonder they want to kill him. They constantly want to kill Amos. Like, I mean, if he can talk to, to women like this, what does he say to those men? So you guys, you better not go call no woman, no, no, no cows of Bashan, get in trouble around here. But Amos remained steadfast in delivering God's word despite facing opposition and threats to his life. With words like that, you understand, right? But Amos' message focused on denouncing social injustices and moral corruption within the Israel community, specifically in the northern part of Israel. But although Amos' words often carried a tone of judgment, and rebuke. His motivation was for people to repent and return to God. His message of judgment was tempered with appeals for mercy and calls for genuine repentance. Amos is a reminder of God's ability to use ordinary people just like us to accomplish extraordinary things in our lives but also talks about the importance for us to advocate for justice and righteousness in our society. We should advocate for it. Now, let's look at the purpose of Amos' prophetic ministry. And in the first eight chapters of Amos and the first 10 verses of chapter 9, so from Amos 1, verse 1, to Amos 9, verse 10, he described the severity of Israel's sin against God and God's judgment for their sins. But then we find this thing in the last five verses of Amos. Even before God released his judgment on Israel, Amos gave them hope for the future. God promises restoration and renewal, signaling his unwavering commitment to his covenant people despite their disobedience. I mean, think about that. God says, here are all the things you're doing wrong. And just showing them and showing them and showing them and then says, in spite of all these different things, there's still a pathway to be reconciled with me. So chapter 9 begins with a vision of the pre-incarnate Christ standing beside the altar. This is before Christ came. You see this vision that he's standing beside this altar and he's ready to destroy both the temple and those who corrupted its worship. So God's judgment became a reality because the people challenged his sovereignty over their lives. And here's how they did it. King Jeroboam, he instituted his own concept of worship. He had this, these two calves for people to worship. And then he also established his own place of worship and hired his own priests to serve in these temples. Understand that God would raise up these prophets, raise up these priests. Jeroboam says, I'm good. I'm going to hire my own priests. I'm going to build my own temple. 
and I'm going to give you these calves to worship. That's what he did. So some of these practices still exist today through state-sponsored religion, cultural appropriation and revisionism, idolatry of materialism, religious pluralism, and syncretism. So all these can become political manipulation of religion. All these things. I mean, there are some grants that we just will never get because we have integrity and we're, just never, we're not going to stay away from it. So just how it is. And that's what it's so, so back then. It's like, if you want to live a certain way, you have to worship those two calves. And so God withheld his final judgment on Israel for 700 years, hoping for their repentance. Think about that. He is talking about this. For 700 years. I mean, I don't think anyone here is 70 as yet. Anyone of you guys are 70? If you're not 70 yet, I mean, it doesn't matter how much you have sinned. God is still waiting for you. God is saying, just return to me. He went at 700 years and saying, guys, you're doing all these things wrong. Return to me. So if you make one mistake, God is still saying, return to me. But during this time, there was a moment in 2 Kings 18, verses 11 to 12, where God's judgment fell upon those in leadership. But in Amos 9, verse 8, the prophet gave a glimmer of hope for, for, for preserving a remnant. Amos 9, verse 8 says, Behold, the eyes of the Lord God are on the sinful kingdom, and thou will destroy it from the face of the earth. Yet I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob, says the, the Lord. Now, the house of Jacob represents those who did not turn their backs on God or even give in to false worship. So while they would be taken into exile with, with others, they would be preserved because they're like, take me away, I'm not going to denounce God. So God is always faithful to his promises. And here's what I mean. Because in 2 Kings verse 7, chapter 7, verse 16, God had told David, and your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. I mean, forever is not temporary. Forever is forever. I wish there was another word to describe that, right? But despite Israel's sin, God remains holy by responding to sin, but faithful in maintaining a pathway for reconciliation because of his promises. So that's what we saw in Amos 9, verse 8. Behold, the eyes of the Lord God are on the sinful kingdom. So he's seeing the sin. And I will destroy it from the face of the earth. So he's removing sin. But it says, yet I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob, says the Lord. So, however, according to biblical prophecy, the fallen kingdom could only be raised by an offshoot of David's lineage. Who's this offshoot? I can't hear you. You, you you're like, I'm not sure. It is Jesus. When we say Jesus, you got to call it Jesus, you know? Say that like, Jesus. Jesus is this offshoot. How do we know? Isaiah 9, verse 6 to 7. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, 
Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. So this prophecy refers to Jesus Christ, who will fulfill the promise of the Messiah in the Old Testament. Now let's break down those two verses down real quickly. I'm going to take a snapshot. A child is born, a son is given. This indicates the miraculous birth of the Messiah, who is both fully human, born, and fully divine, given. So God gave his son. The government will be upon his shoulder. This signifies the authority and kingship the Messiah will possess. Again, this is prophetic, which is why I'm using this will as if he hasn't come yet. His names, the names will be given to the Messiah. Wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. So these names describe his character and attributes. The everlasting nature of his reign, the Messiah's kingdom, will have no end, indicating an eternal and everlasting rule. Then it says, upon the throne of David. This connects the Messiah to the lineage of David, fulfilling the promise of a descendant of David who would reign forever, which is what we read in 2 Samuel 7, verse 16. It says, the zeal of the Lord. This emphasizes that the fulfillment of this prophecy is not dependent on human effort, but on the determination and the power of God himself. So God had been sending prophets, but this time he gave his son. Big difference. So Isaiah 9, verses 6 to 7, is a prophecy that brings hope and anticipation for the coming of the Messiah, who will establish the kingdom of righteousness and peace that will endure forever. So we saw that in the Old Testament. And look at what happened in Luke 1, verse 26 to 27. Now in the sixth month, the angel... Gabriel was sent by God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. So you're seeing there's still this connection. So before that day of restoration, God will again purge the nation of Israel during the great tribulation that we read in Revelation as the nations of the world gather to destroy Israel from the face of the earth. So there's going to come a time when the nations are going to gather to destroy Israel. And so when it appears that Israel is lost, Jesus will appear from the heavens, destroy Israel's enemies, and restore David's kingdom. And when that event occurs, God's kingdom will never be destroyed again will become an eternal kingdom of God. And in fact, Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, he actually quotes Amos 9, verses 11 to 12. Look what he says in, in, in Acts 15, 13 to 18. And after they had become silent, James answered, saying, Men and brethren, listen to me. Simon has declared how God at first visited the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree just as it is written. What's written? Verse 16. After this, I will return and will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will set it up so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who does all these things, known to God from eternity, are, are all his works." So there's this connection between the old and the new. 
So it's important to know that what God has been saying throughout history. So in his first coming, Jesus came to fulfill the purpose of the law, but he did not come to fulfill every prophecy. Not all things in Amos have been fulfilled, only some of them. Some things will be a wait-and-see moment, and some things we won't see in our lifetime, but we must accept them as true. So now here's what it looks like with the restoration of the people. Amos 9, verses 13 to 15. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes him who sows seed. The mountains shall drip with sweet wine and all the hills shall flow with it. I'll bring back the captives of my people Israel. They shall build the waste cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink wine from them. They shall also make gardens and eat fruit from them. I will plant them in their land, and no longer shall they be pulled up from the land I have given them, says the Lord your God. We go back to verse 15. God says, I will plant them in their land. This statement is in response to Genesis 15, verses 18 to 21. And what happened is that God had promised the Israelites all these different lands, but the Israelites have never possessed all those lands that God promised through Abraham. So if we believe that God is true, and he is, then we must believe that if he's promising all these lands and they haven't gotten them yet, at some point it's going to happen. Makes sense, right? Thanks for the head nods. Now, Revelation 20, verses 1 to 6, it talks about the millennium, not the millennials, but the millennium. During the millennium, God's people, including Israel, will experience a period of unprecedented blessing and prosperity. So the millennium is a period of 1,000 years, symbolized by the fulfillment of promises, promises made to them in the Old Testament. So God is saying, the things that were promised in the Old Testament, you're going to see it come to pass. And so with the curse of sin removed, the effects of sin and its consequences, such as famine, war, devastating weather, will all be removed. So at some point, we don't have to worry about global warming. We don't have to worry about that. It's going to be all taken care of, okay? So just deal with it for now. Just deal with it. It's all right. But Ezekiel 34, 25 to 31, it describes a future covenant of peace in which God's people will dwell securely in their land, free from oppression and fear. Christian eschatology often understands these passages as pointing to the conditions that will prevail during this millennium, a thousand years, when Christ reigns as king and establishes his kingdom on the earth. So the Israelites will return to Israel just before the Lord returns. So what we're seeing um, is that the prophecy of Amos 9, verses 11 to 15, is yet to be fulfilled. It hasn't happened as yet. This is why I want you guys not just to live in the New Testament. Every once in a while, just glance over the Old Testament, all right? So David's throne was restored at Christ's first coming in Luke 1, verses 31 to 33. But David's throne will be occupied at Jesus' second coming, 
that we see in Isaiah 9-7. In other words, if you remember, when we were moving over here, the hill, I guess, or hilly as the faction is known, but when we're coming here, we first, we had the location, didn't have a sign, but we were paying rent. It's ours. We're restoring, doing renovation, getting up to par. But we didn't occupy it until after the fact. So when Christ came, he's saying, I want you to know that I have arrived. I'm this king. I'm just setting up my kingdom. Giving us a pathway, because before, in the Old Testament, if you remember, the priest had to offer sacrifices. So Christ came and he's saying, I'm pretty much coming to give you a pathway back to God. So that when you sin, you make mistakes, you don't have to go grab a pigeon or, you know, a sheep. You can just pray and seek forgiveness. So he's making a pathway, he's setting up shop. But it's coming back, and when he comes back, he's going to occupy this throne. And that's what we're seeing in here. So when you look at in Amos, all the things you're seeing from the first few chapters is talking about all the sin that exists. And now he's saying, there will be a time when I'm going to restore order. So there's this thing that we're seeing. So there are two life lessons to be learned from this prophet Amos. The first is this. Disobeying God is a rejection of his sovereignty. Pretty straightforward, right? Disobeying God is a rejection of his sovereignty. The second thing is that God uses judgment to purify his people. Like, whoa, what do you mean? When I speak of judgment, I'm referring to temporal suffering. Not death, because if you're dead, you don't feel it, right? But there are times when things would happen in your life, and you're like, why is this thing happening in my life? That can be seen as a judgment, a consequence for a sin they might have committed. Because everything we do in life, there's a consequence for it, good or bad. You serve Jesus, you ran with him. You don't serve him, you know where you're going. So when we talk about this, as, so as we're living as Christians, you know, temporal suffering can be seen as those judgments. So God continues to purify us through his judgment. So Amos' prophecy only gives us a glimpse of God's restoration. So you might say, well, how do we apply this to our lives? Injustices exist in our world. There's no doubt. And yet, as Christians, we often disregard the suffering of others because we desire to do the important work. What important work? Like praying and mentoring and teaching and leading worship. We want to do all the important things, but we neglect justice. But the book of Amos reminds us that those things, while they're important to our Christian walk, they're pointless when we don't love and serve others in our lives. Worship all you want. Sing all you want. Read the Bible five times all day long. You don't love people. You don't serve people. It means nothing. It means nothing. Because it's not one thing or the other. It's both. See, the book of Amos reminds us that, that those things can, if, if, we don't, if we don't love others and show justice, 
we're moving further and further away from God. Don't be so focused on the invisible God that we ignore his visible creation. The physical and spiritual needs of people matter in God's scheme of things. See, we have an opportunity to change how we live, not just individually, but also collectively. I mean, why do you believe it's important for us as a church to establish a compassion center? Because that's the heart of God. So when you search through the New Testament, every time you find Christ, before he heals somebody, he always moved with compassion. Moved with compassion, then he healed them. Sometimes people can't fully embrace Jesus because the injustice that they're experiencing is overwhelming. I mean, imagine being a church you know, that can look beyond our immediate comfort just to make someone feel better. We've got the worship team come forward. And sometimes we can't solve everything in one setting. But the fact that we're alive means we can change how we serve others. So the question I have for you is this. How will you live your life in service of others? I know how you want to worship. I know how you want to dig deep into your word. But how will you live your life in service of others? When you see someone along the street, will you cross on the other side or will you inquire to see, can I make a difference in someone's life? If you're here and you don't have a relationship with Christ, I want you to know that all these things that we're talking about in, in this, this unfilling love of Christ, is God pointing us in the right direction so that you, if you're not a believer, can see the life that we live and serve Christ. But for all of us who are Christians, we have a responsibility not to just hide behind the mask of worship or hide behind the mask of a church, but we have a responsibility to serve others, to worship God. God is saying, I want to see the inside. That's what I care about. Go ahead and impress them with the things out there. But I'm looking at this. When you're done singing a song, can you love your neighbor? Or do you go back to hating someone else outside? So God is calling us to say, justice will look different for different others. But nonetheless, we're required to serve God justly. Let us pray. Lord, thank you for your love, your grace, your peace. We're reminded in your word that your desire to re reconcile us with you. And so God, you sent your son, Jesus. And we're seeing how it plays out now in our lives. But back then, Amos didn't know how it would turn out. They couldn't see it. But God, we've experienced it. We've experienced your love. Because God, we experienced the love because you sent your son. And just as how someone shared the gospel to us and we experienced the love, I pray, God, that we can demonstrate the love to others also. I pray, God, for the one who doesn't have a relationship with you, that you'll help them to experience your love, God, and desire to serve you. But overall, God, you desire for us 
to have justice. Rightfully living our lives in a way that pleases you. Not just spiritually, but also externally. So help us, God, to live the way that you desire us to live. Give you praise in Jesus.